Well, we left off in the book of Ruth with Naomi returning from Moab, battered, bitter, and bereaved, having suffered the loss of her husband and two sons, all within a decade. She states publicly that the Lord's hand has gone out against her. I left full, she said, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, of course, she's not quite as empty as she thinks. She has Ruth. And more than that, she has the God to whom Ruth has sworn her allegiance. And at the end of the first chapter in the book of Ruth, there's this first shaft of light. We saw it last week, this first ray, because we're told that the Lord had visited the land, which had been under a famine. And Naomi and Ruth return at the barley harvest. And so we think as readers, perhaps now, the land itself having moved from famine to harvest, Maybe Naomi herself can move from emptiness back towards some wholeness and fullness. And that's where the narrative is as we begin this morning. We'll make three points. Ruth's, they're on the back inside page of your bulletin. Ruth's gleaning, Boaz's generosity, and Naomi's gratitude. Gleaning, generosity, gratitude. So we're in the book of Ruth, chapter 2. Verse 1, Ruth's gleaning. Now, the the narrator here, the narrator always knows more than than the characters do, tells us a secret. Strictly speaking, this is redundant because we would find it out in due course. But the narrator wants us to keep an eye on the man he introduces here. And so, he's already beginning to teach us that there is a kind of divine superintending a providence that's working for our good even in and through what is humanly bleak. Even in Naomi's case, what is humanly incomprehensible. We might even say, especially in what is humanly bleak and incomprehensible. Naomi had a relative, we're told. This is a pretty ordinary fact. Most people have relatives. Naomi has a relative. On her husband's side. A kinsman. Now a kinsman could, now they weren't obligated to, but they could redeem, and by redeem here we mean buy back or pay a price. Thus we get the, we get the term kinsman redeemer. They could buy back or pay a price so that a deceased man's family would be liberated from debt or from slavery or from poverty. And this particular kinsman, we're told, was a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech named Boaz. Standing here means substance. This means that Boaz is a man of means, a man of some wealth. And so right away we notice a couple things about Boaz. Not only is he qualified by blood to be 
the kinsman redeemer here, he is also able. He has the resources to redeem. And we'll come to see in the text that he also has the character to undertake the task willingly. But this is just an introductory note, a foretaste from the narrator. So next, Ruth, the Moabitess, the text is always reminding us of that, says to Naomi, let me go into the fields to pick up the leftover grain. That is, she wants to glean a practice of picking over what was left after the harvesters had done their work in the field. Now, gleaning was regulated by laws in Israel. And this is a sign of God's great tenderness. Right? Israel's God in his compassion for the poor, for the widow, for the stranger, and remember, Ruth is all three of these, provides in his law for the subsistence of the poor. You can find it in Leviticus 19. Verses 9 and 10, for example. It's in a couple places. But there the law says that if you reap the harvest of your land, you can't reap to the very edges of the field. That's to be left over for the poor. And not only that, if you have a vineyard, for example, you're not allowed to go back over the vineyard a second time and pick up the grapes you missed the first time. You leave the stuff that's fallen, you leave the stuff you dropped, and you leave the stuff on the corners... And God says you leave it for the poor and for the foreigner. And the reason you do this, Leviticus says, is this. I am the Lord your God. It's a reflection of his covenant mercy in his character. Now, this still required very hard labor. We would call this work fair in our day, I think. So Ruth has to roll up her sleeves, and she does that here. She takes the initiative. She's nothing if not a forceful and determined woman. Anyone who's seen that pledge, that marvelous pledge that she made to Naomi that we looked at last week, I will go where you go. Your house will be my house. I will be buried where you're buried. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. She's determined And this was hard work. This gleaning is difficult work, and it could be dangerous work. Remember, even though it was law in Israel, there could be, and surely there were, unscrupulous landowners trying to maximize profit. They might might resent the gleaners. They might make life difficult for them, much less for a single and vulnerable and foreign woman. And so Ruth says in the text that she'll go and pick up this extra grain. Behind anyone, notice this, anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Like she realizes that she needs grace. You know what she's saying? She's saying, I'm going to need to do this task. I'm going to need to taste the human side of that divine hesed, that divine covenant love, that divine kindness. That's what I'm going to need to go out and do this. I'm going to need to find favor. And Naomi gives her no direction. She gives her no advice. Because Naomi apparently doesn't know that Boaz is out there. The narrator knows it. You know it. But Naomi doesn't know it. This is a baffling fact in the narrative. I mentioned this last week. Somehow Naomi doesn't know that she has two kinsmen redeemers in Bethlehem 
which is a town at this time that might, might have a thousand people in it, if that many. But she doesn't know. She's forgotten. So she simply says, go ahead, my daughter. Ruth goes out, begins the gleaning. She acts, Ruth is acting like a provider. She actually isn't looking for a provider. You might say, the best way to find a husband is to act like you don't need one. But I won't give any marriage advice. (laughs) So, in the middle of verse 3, we read this. As it turns out, she was working in a field belonging to, you guessed it, Boaz. Now, it's interesting, this language here. Have you ever said something like, you know, said that something was an accident or a coincidence, only to be told by another person that there are no accidents or chance events in God's world? That's probably happened to you. Well, the next time that you, that, that happens, you can tell them that, in fact, you're speaking biblically. Because the text says, as it turned out. You know what that literally means? It means, as her chance chanced. Like as chance would chance it. Those are the words the Holy Spirit uses. By the way, Jesus basically says the same thing in the parable of the Good Samaritan when he says, it just so happened. As it happened, Jesus says, a priest was going down the road. The point is not that God is not sovereign over every event. In fact, the narrator puts it that way to highlight that he is. Right? He's trying to point out this very fact. The point, though, here is this. To us, to us, not to God, of course, but to us, things often fall out in an inscrutable way, in a, in a way that's apparently random, in a way that's not seemingly ordered, in a way that seems like chance. And so we use that kind of language. And so does Scripture. But behind it and in it and through all of this seemingly coincidental stuff, in the it-just-so-happens stuff of life, the God for whom a sparrow doesn't fall without his will is at work. It's one of the great lessons of the book of Ruth. Um, So the providential God, whose hand had struck Naomi, is still working, even though he seems silent, through the most ordinary of tasks, And human events, gleaning, a field, a relative. And this is something that this text calls you and I to believe. Right? God's providence is governing your life in his tenderness and in his goodness and in his wisdom. Governing it for your eternal good in the ordinary stuff, but also, and this applies to Naomi as well, when it appears he's against you. When all you can see is darkness and death. It's especially in those things and in those people and those events where you find yourself saying, how can God be in this thing? Well, as it turns out, the story isn't finished. It's not finished until the God who governs all things finishes weaving it working through these ordinary means of daily life, mundane and random as they might appear. So Ruth is out gleaning. She's just out in the morning for a day's work. So the second point I want us to see here is Boaz's generosity. 
Verse 4. Another happy coincidence. Just then, the text says. Just then. Right at that time. Of course, Boaz arrives at his field. He seems like a godly man with a good relationship with his employees. Right? He greets them. The Lord be with you. And they reply, the Lord bless you. He seems like the kind of guy who wants to spread blessing around. He's a businessman. But he's not just a businessman on Sunday. He's a businessman on Monday and on Tuesday and with the way he talks to his staff and his employees. And they seem to have affection for him. And so right away we're given this sense of Boaz's largeness of heart. Just from the way he speaks and the way he appears on the scene. He notices right away there's a woman he doesn't recognize in the field, and he asks about her. He asks his foreman. This, by the way, is another indication that Boaz has some wealth, right? Boaz has somebody taking care of the field for him. He has a foreman. He asks the foreman about this woman, and the foreman fills him in. She's the Moabitess who came back from Moab. And we learn some more about Ruth here as the foreman fills Boaz in. We learn that she's courteous, and she's polite. And she's not presumptuous. In verse 7, she said, please, let me glean and gather. She doesn't say, look, I have a right according to the Torah to be here. Which she does. She's respectful. She's the opposite of a modern sense of entitlement. This is not a rights-based culture. right? This is a duty-based culture. You can see this again down in verse 10 after Boaz speaks to her. She bows down and says, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? She's self-effacing. There's a deep humility here from which Ruth's gratitude springs. See this again in verse 13. She speaks of, I don't have the standing, she says to Boaz, I don't have the standing of one of your servants. This is a wonderful kind of humility. It's a kind of respect for custom. And it's out of this sort of character that I think thanksgiving and gratitude can spring. Out of a sense of entitlement, it's very hard to be grateful. But when a person has this posture toward life and toward other people, gratitude happens. There is in Ruth a meekness which inherits the earth. So notice, she sees in the law, she sees in the Torah, and she sees in those who are administering the Torah favor or grace. There's no need to pit law against grace. The law itself is a gracious gift of God. And Ruth has an instinct about this. She's appreciative of every small thing, even though she's entitled to it by the law. She's the opposite of a complainer. And she's diligent and persistent. The the foreman says, except for a short rest, she's been working in the field from the morning. Her work ethic is impressive. And it seems that Boaz is duly impressed because the two of them have a lengthy conversation beginning in verse 8. And he speaks of her or to her affectionately. He calls her my daughter or daughter. You know, one thing you notice right away about Boaz, if you put yourself back into this time, into this culture, and into this situation, the first thing you could say is Boaz is not xenophobic. He knows she's a foreigner. He knows she's from Moab. He's not worried about her Moabite ethnicity at all. 
And he's generous. He provides for her. He says to her, don't go glean in another field. Stay with the women who work for me. Now, it's hard to say. The narrator is silent. We don't know if Boaz has any romantic interest at this point. Commentators through the centuries have tended to read it in. Perhaps it's there. But we can certainly say that he's a generous and kind man. It's really remarkable for him to include Ruth with his Israelite women. He says to her, when you're thirsty, you can drink from the jars that the men have filled. You don't have to serve the men. You can take from their provisions. And then he protects her. He says, I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. Well, apparently men in power had a problem back then. There's nothing new under the sun. But Boaz takes precautions for her safety and for her purity. Right? So she's vulnerable on two fronts. She's vulnerable because of her gender and she's vulnerable because of her nationality. And Boaz is really sensitive to both of these things. And he's had a talk with his male harvesters, and he's warned them. He has a zero-tolerance policy. So you can tell right away, this is not a guy who's thinking in terms of maximizing his profit. He doesn't obey the law in a calculating, grudging fashion, just doing the minimum just following the law to the letter. Rather, he shows hesed, kindness, covenant love, and a deep humaneness in the way he upholds the law. He reflects the fact that the law itself is a gift of grace. And that's how we should reflect our administration of the commandments of God to one another. And so in verse 11 we learned that Ruth's great pledge to Naomi had been made known by word of mouth. I've been told, Boaz says, about what you've done for your mother-in-law. How you left your father and mother. Notice that. That's marital language right there. You left your father and mother. We saw this last week when, when Ruth clings to Naomi. That's the word Genesis uses for a husband and wife clinging to one another. And so Boaz says, you left your father and your mother And you left your homeland, that's Abrahamic language, you left your homeland to come and live with a people you didn't know. She has an Abrahamic faith, a faith that launches into the unknown in deep submission to the dark providence of God. So remember that pledge, right? The loyalty which she pledged. That requires courage and fortitude to be lived out. Anyone can make a wonderful pledge. Pledges are easy. Pilgrimages are hard. And Boaz is is saying, this has all come to my ears. And he continues by praying for the Lord's blessing on her. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You know what that means? The key thing about this prayer is that Boaz sees a convert, not a foreign Moabite. He sees a fellow Israelite by conversion. She has sought refuge, protection, and provision under the wings of the God of Israel. This is one of the real lovely images of God in the Old Testament, the wings of God. 
it, it speaks of his tenderness. It speaks of his nearness and his intimacy with his care for his people. Psalm 36, one of my favorite psalms, says, How precious is your steadfast love, O Lord! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And in Psalm 91, now we could multiply examples here. I'll just leave you with these two. But in Psalm 91, abiding in the shadow of the Almighty means you're covered with his wings. And in this image of taking refuge under the wings of the God of Israel, there's something of the yearning heart of God unveiled. You might remember Jesus when he enters the city in the last week of his life, weeping, broken over Jerusalem, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I've wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her brood under my wings. The incarnate God of Israel. And so Boaz prays for this God, the God who chose Israel and brought her on eagle's wings to himself to give Ruth rest and restoration and reward for her obedience and service to Naomi. Now, here I want us to notice something. Boaz is already, and he shall be, the main way that God answers his prayer for Ruth. Now, we should be alert to this dynamic, and we should be willing to be the answers to the things we ask God to do in the lives of other people. But you can be the divine hesed, the divine kindness to one another and to the needy, and that's what Boaz is becoming here. Right? He is the living, embodied shadow of Yahweh's wing to Ruth. He's becoming the answer to his own prayer. And at the mealtime, in verse 14, he continues to show his, you know, above, his extraordinary respect and generosity to Ruth. He shares some of his bread dipped in vinegar. Ruth has more than enough left over after she eats. Boaz provides for her in a super abundant way. And then he orders his men, not the same men he's ordered not to touch her, he orders his men to go above and beyond the requirements of the law. He says, let her gather among the sheaves, don't reprimand her. That is, she doesn't have to glean only from the edges of the field. And then he says, on top of that, just pull some stalks out and leave them behind so she can pick them up. He's guaranteeing her an abundant harvest. Well beyond what was due even to a diligent gleaner. And so after a long day in the fields, Ruth threshes out the barley and ends up with an ephah, which is probably some 30 plus pounds of grain. One day's work. Right? There's a great reversal going on here that the narrator is just slowly unfolding for us. Naomi, who went away full, and came back empty, is now being filled up by the hesed of God through the labors of Ruth and Boaz, Ruth who goes out in the morning empty and comes back full. There are people here and there are people in your lives and in your families and in your circles whom life has stripped barren. 
Maybe they were full, but they're much closer to empty now. You can be the hesed of God by which they are filled back up. So open your eyes and pray, then, as the Lord's providence leads, and seek to be the answer to your own prayers. It's a good question, I think, to ask ourselves about the stuff we're praying. How can I be the answer to this prayer? So the third thing I want to see is Naomi's gratitude. In verse 18, uh, Ruth carries this load of grain back to town. So we don't know how far that is, but it could be a mile or so. It's another thing about Ruth. She's strong. Right? This is no delicate wallflower. This is 30 pounds of grain, and she hauls it back into town. And Naomi sees how much she's gathered, plus the extra that Ruth had from her lunch left over. And one can only imagine Naomi's facial reaction. This has clearly been an exceptional day. Right? Ruth went out empty. She's come back overflowing. She says, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Now again, the narrator never stops and says, hey, did you guys get that? That's not how Hebrew narrative works. But I want you to notice this. Bitter Naomi is pronouncing benedictions. Blessed is the man who took notice of you. And after she finds out that the man's name was Boaz, that's a little piece of information that must have caused instant amazement and hope. She does it again. She says, the Lord bless him. So at the end of verse 20, has Naomi saying what we all knew no one else did from verse 1 onward. The man is our relative. He's one of our kinsmen, redeemers. This is a pivotal moment for Naomi in the story. In an instant, she realizes that the Lord is at work in the bounty that she and Ruth have received and through the hands of the one from whom they've received it. You can almost see here Naomi's bitterness just begin to evaporate and to turn to gratitude. In verse 20, when she puts all this together, And she says this, the Lord bless him, he has not stopped. He has not stopped. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. It's an astonishing statement. Through Boaz, she realizes that the Lord, whose hesed, whose kindness, she was certain had ceased. She was sure God's kindness to her had stopped. She was sure that God's hand was plotting her ruin. She says he has not, indeed not, stopped showing his kindness to her, to the living and to the dead. How about you? God's kindness to you has not stopped, even when you are sure it must have even when you've been battered and bruised. And remember, some of the battering and bruising Naomi got took, she deserved. (laughs) They fled the land in the famine. It was an act of disobedience. God, she says, has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and even to the dead. 
to Ruth and to Elimelech, her dead husband. Because you know why kindness is being shown to the dead here? Because Elimelech and his sons, their name and their line and their property now stand the very real possibility of being perpetuated. You have to understand the Israelite culture. They didn't think the way modern Americans do. We, want to, we, we think, I wonder if Elimelech was saved. Right? The Israelites think in corporate terms of the nation and its destiny, and that destiny is tied to the land and to seed. Right? And so God is showing his kindness even to the dead. Somehow their futures, the futures of the husband and the sons that Naomi lost, are bound up with the fate of Israel's land and Israel's seed and ultimately the promised Messiah. And Ruth, I mean, Naomi here has a little bit of an instinct and she gets that. And so she confesses here the deep goodness of God. She sees that his covenant fidelity, which you know, it had been eclipsed in her grief. But let's be honest about the human soul and the human condition. Grief does not enable us to see things straight. Sorrow and suffering warp our view of the goodness of God very easily. It had been eclipsed for Naomi, and now she sees something of his absolute loyalty, of his commitment to bring his good purposes to pass. And so it's right here in the text that Naomi's flagging faith. And by the way, by flagging, I don't mean she had a bad week. She had a bad decade. Her faith begins to revive. The Lord's kindness is indeed, she says, unceasing to the living and the dead. One day, beloved, That is all that it has been in the text. One day of God's goodness flowing from him through your Boaz-like generosity or your Ruth-like labor. One day of hesed from the saints can revive the wounded hearts of bitter, suffering, struggling people. One day. God, Mary said, remember, fills the empty poor with good things. And he's doing that here through Boaz and Ruth out of the fountain of his unceasing kindness. And Ruth stays, we learn this. She stays in the fields of Boaz until the end of the harvest. And the chapter ends with these words, she lived with her mother-in-law. And that sets up a big dynamic because you know what she lived with her mother-in-law means? It means she needs a husband. And that's going to unfold next week. So, let me conclude. The gospel is for us in this text. And not only the gospel, but the practical implications of loving one another and loving the poor in the gospel are here. God, the Father, out of his abundant hesed, his unceasing kindness, sent Jesus, your kinsman redeemer, the full one who became empty, that through his emptiness you might be filled up. And you know how this filling up, this reviving of hope happens. It happens through the Boazes and Ruths in the body of Christ, willing to labor in humility, willing to show generosity, willing to be the instruments by which their own prayers are answered. 
People who know that there are two things that we live for. To further the cause of God in the world and to do good to the bodies and souls of men and women. People whose kindness enables us to see that even in the bitterest parts of our lives, God is plotting for our glory. As the prophet Jeremiah came to realize this, in the midst of the deepest, darkest, most bitter hour of Israel's history, sitting in the midst of the smoldering ruins of the exile, in the book of Lamentations, he says the steadfast love, the hesed, of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Amen.